This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, Le Show, Countdown, On the Media, and The Daily Show with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Young Turks. Newsweek columnist Eleanor Clift has long been a TV leftist, despite the fact that she's never really been on the left. But beyond that problem, sometimes her arguments just don't make sense. Take her October 15th column, which ran under the headline, Math Lessons. How did a concept as unsexy and complicated as the national deficit become the galvanizing political issue of the day? In the column, Clift asks bluntly, quote, why is the deficit the top issue in voters' minds, close quote. Well, as we've pointed out numerous times on Counterspin, you hear that a lot from political reporters and pundits. Who you don't hear it from is voters, for whom the deficit is not, in reality, a top issue. Not even close. As the New York Times reported on September 16th, quote, the deficit barely registers as a topic of concern when survey respondents were asked to volunteer their worries, close quote. Now, if only they poll pundits on why they keep insisting otherwise. And now, two weeks before the elections, it is finally becoming clear what is going to happen in those elections and why. It had not been clear before because over the past few weeks in particular, the media narrative about what's going to happen in this year's elections has turned into a Republican campaign ad. There has been no daylight over the last couple of weeks between how the Beltway media has been explaining what's going on in politics and what conservative candidates say they want to happen in American politics. In other words, the, the messages that the Beltway media is using to explain what's happening in the elections right now happen to be the exact same messages that Republicans are using in their campaign ads. This might be one of those things that's easier to show than say. So here's just one example. Here is the spin as dictated to us by the punditocracy. It's the deficit. That's what the elections are all about. It's the deficit. The reason Republicans are going to pick up seats in this election is because people are fed up with the deficit. That's the media spin. The Republican Party's focus on reducing the federal deficit may be resonating with independent voters who could swing the midterm elections. You know, conveniently, here's that exact same spin in a typical Republican campaign ad this year. Deficit spending is the number one threat to our country right now. It's immoral to spend money we don't have. The federal government, like my family and yours, has got to live within its means. My solution to the budget crisis is plain and simple. Stop spending our money. See, these two dovetail really nicely, right? It's a perfect spin cycle. The Republicans say, we want to bring down the deficit. And then the media says, Republicans will win because they want to bring down the deficit. That's what explains the election. It's the deficit. No, it's not. If it were the deficit, this would not have just happened. You want to extend 
all, all the Bush tax cuts, which would add $4 trillion to the deficit, you say, balance the budget by cutting spending. Question, as a bottom line businesswoman, where are you going to find $4 trillion to cut? Well, let's just start with the fact that, as you pointed out in your last interview, spending has skyrocketed out of control in the last two years. Forgive me, Ms. Where are you going to cut? Where are you going to cut entitlements? What benefits are you going to cut? What eligibility See, Chris, is you going to change? You know, Chris, I have to say, with all due respect, you're asking a typical political question. Republican Senate candidate Carly Fiorina of California on Fox News Sunday yesterday. Mr. Wallace went on to ask her seven times in total what she would cut to offset the $4 trillion in lost revenue from extending all of the Bush tax cuts. Seven times he asked her before, in exasperation, he just quit. If the Republicans really were poised to gain seats in this election because they're so credible on fixing the deficit, then major Republican candidates would not be on TV two weeks before the election proposing to add $4 trillion to the deficit with no corresponding cuts, no way to balance it, and no explanation. And this is not just true right now. This is not just Carly Fiorina falling apart. This has been true the whole campaign season. Months ago, you'll remember that we traded fake campaign ads with Republican Senate candidate Marco Rubio of Florida after he started fundraising, weirdly using my name. We finally boiled it down to just asking Mr. Rubio over and over and over again, even using signs, uh, about his economic plan, which is to add three and a half trillion dollars to the deficit. Three and a half trillion dollars. How can you propose adding three and a half trillion dollars to the deficit and call yourself a fiscal conservative? At that point, Mr. Rubio stopped playing with us and started ignoring that question that we were asking. If what is about to happen in these elections is all about Republicans having such credibility on the deficit, what happened between us and Marco Rubio would not have happened. What happened with Carly Fiorina yesterday on Fox News Sunday would not have happened. We keep hearing from Republican candidates, and we keep hearing from the media that spins the elections for Republicans this year. We keep hearing how much concern about the deficit explains why Republicans are going to pick up seats in this election. It's the deficit. That's what explains this election. No, it's not. Not this election and not these Republicans. But when we are not hearing that it's the deficit, they've got another example. They've got another explanation for what's happening. They're telling us that maybe it's not the deficit, maybe it's big government. <clears throat> big government is what explains what's going to happen in these elections. The Republicans are poised to pick up seats in these elections because they represent a rejection of big government. That's what we're hearing from the media. As views of big government go, so go Dems out the door. Conveniently, that's, it's not just what we're hearing in the media. It's also what we are hearing from the people who are trying to elect Republicans this year. I woke up one morning and it was there. Big government on my back. It's a huge problem. It's affecting everyone. Congress supported big health care, big bailouts, big debt. Get Washington off our backs. Stop big government on election day. And again, these two things dovetail nicely, right? There's these conservatives, there's a family research council ad, right? They, they say they want to get big government off our backs. And then the media says Republicans will win because they want to get big government off our backs. That's what explains the election, see? It's big government. No, it's not. If it were big government, this would not be happening. 
Sharon Angle voted against background checks to identify sex predators. She says rape victims should be forced to have the baby. I am pro-life, and I'll answer the next question. Um, I, I don't believe in the exceptions of rape or incest. That's right. Even in cases of rape and incest. Ken Buck. He's too extreme for Colorado. In Carl Palladino's New York, victims of rape or incest would be denied the right to choose. He would make them victims a second time. This year we have a slate of Republican candidates running for office who want a federal government so big that it makes decisions about every pregnancy in the country. It decides them by fiat. We have the most extreme slate of big government criminalized abortion candidates that has ever run for office, running for office this year. So even though we keep hearing from Republican candidates and the media that is spinning the elections for them, how much concern about big government explains why Republicans are gonna pick up seats in these elections, that's what explains the election, right? It's big government? It's not. Not this election, not these Republicans. But when we are not hearing that it's big government, we're hearing that maybe it's, uh, it's um, the stimulus. Oh yeah, it's the stimulus. Yeah, the stimulus is what explains what's gonna happen in these elections. Republicans are poised to pick up seats because they oppose the stimulus. The stimulus was such bad policy, everybody knows that their stimulus didn't work. That's the line from the media. That's the line from Republicans. And the reality of it is on display today yet again. Yet another report outed yet another batch of Republicans who were happy to rail against the stimulus, but then proved by their actions that they did not believe their own rhetoric when they asked for stimulus money to boost jobs in their own districts. Republicans like Pete Sessions of Texas. Democrats have forced their tax and spend policies through Congress, killing jobs and drowning our nation in debt. No to budget-busting stimulus bills. Pete Sessions said those things in public while simultaneously asking for stimulus funds on the side, writing to the Transportation Department that stimulus funds will, quote, create jobs and stimulate the economy. And it's not just Pete Sessions. It's all of these other A-list supposed conservatives. It's John McCain, it's Ron Paul, it's Mitch McConnell, it's Michelle Bachman even. They've all asked for stimulus dollars to fund jobs in their districts, even while they say publicly that that stimulus program didn't make any jobs. So we keep hearing from Republican candidates and from the media that is spinning the elections for them how much opposition to the stimulus explains why Republicans are going to pick up seats in these elections. That's what explains the election, right? It's the stimulus. No, it's not. <laughs> not this election. Not these Republicans. And we're not hearing that it's the deficit or it's big government or it's the stimulus. They've tried out uh, maybe it's Obamacare. Yeah, maybe it's Obamacare. Republicans poised to pick up seats because they opposed Obamacare. Obamacare, a classic example of liberal government overreach. Republicans will win this year because they opposed it. That's the line from the media and that's the line from Republicans. The reality is that on the day that the trial starts, where Virginia's conservative attorney general is showboat suing the federal government to stop health reform, the showboat conservative governor of Virginia has just finished taking credit for all the new funding that the state of Virginia is getting from health reform. So even though we keep hearing from Republican candidates and the media that is spinning the elections for them, how much opposition to Obamacare explains why Republicans are gonna pick up seats in these elections, then how do you end up with showboat conservative candidates running on everything that health reform is doing for their state? They keep saying it, it's Obamacare. That's what explains this election. No, it's not. Not this election and not these Republicans. 
But we're not hearing that it's the deficit or the big government or the stimulus or Obamacare. They've also tried on the idea that maybe it's economic populism. It's the economic populism that Republicans represent. Yeah, Republicans are poised to pick up seats because they represent a populist message. It all started with Rick Santelli on CNBC. It's all about being against the Wall Street bailout. It boils down to personal responsibility and being against those fat cats on Wall Street. That's the line from the media and from Republicans, right? The reality is that Republicans have nominated people like Pat Toomey, a former derivatives trader, to be their Senate candidate in Pennsylvania. That's stepping up against the Wall Street fat cats. They've nominated former D.C. lobbyist Dan Coats to be their Senate candidate in Indiana. Even, even though we keep hearing from Republican candidates and the media that is spinning the elections for them, how much economic populism explains why Republicans are going to pick up seats in these elections, that's what explains these elections. It's this populism thing. It's, it's really not. Not this election and not these Republicans. When it's not the deficit or big government or stimulus or Obamacare or populism, they've tried on this idea that maybe it's about being political outsiders. Yeah, Republicans are poised to pick up seats because they've nominated all these outsider, non-candidate candidates. All these political novices who are bringing a breath of fresh air to people who are sick of seeing the same names and the same faces come election season. That's the line from the media. That's the line from the Republicans. The reality is that these Republican political novices, supposedly, are people like Sharon Engel, an elected Nevada state legislator for seven years. Ken Buck, who was an elected district attorney in Colorado. Christine O'Donnell, a perennial Senate candidate. This is her third run for Senate in five years. Joe Miller, who's now refusing to answer questions about the time he misused government computers in his former government job in an attempt to become chair of the state Republican Party. This is not your neighbor running for office. This is not your buddy who's never been interested in the issues before. These aren't political novices. These aren't outsiders. These are perennial, sometimes crank candidates who are good enough at talking to the media, and the media is cowed enough by conservative bullying that they have been imagineered into credible candidates. So even though we keep hearing from Republican candidates and the media how much nominating outsiders explains why Republicans are going to pick up seats in these elections, that's what explains these elections. It's outsiders. It's not. The narratives that are now being pushed by the media and by Republicans about how they're all just populists, they're all just small government amateurs, those narratives are wrong. Bob McDonnell, the conservative hero governor of Virginia before getting elected, he wrote about wanting to use the power of government to punish fornicators. Christine O'Donnell started her professional political career touring the country promoting the idea that homosexuality can be cured, that condoms cause AIDS, and that having sex with yourself is adultery. Mike Lee, the Republican Senate candidate in Utah, is running on the platform that people should not be allowed to vote for senator because he wants to repeal the 17th Amendment. John Racy, Republican Senate candidate in West Virginia, saying he wants to return to 19th century labor laws. Yes, in West Virginia. He's out on the stump calling our nation's energy secretary now, Stephen Chu, calling him Dr. Chow Main. Ron Johnson, running for Senate in Wisconsin against Russ Feingold, has a theory that there is global warming in the world, but he believes it's caused by sunspots. Rich Ayotte, running for the House in Ohio, exposed by the Atlantic Monthly for dressing up in a Nazi uniform as a hobby. His campaign has defended the choice on the grounds that, hey, the SS really weren't as bad as the Nazi Nazis. They're just the SS. The response to that in the Republican Party is that House Minority Leader John Boehner has decided to let the guy keep the $5,000 donation that Mr. Boehner's PAC gave to him. Carl Palladino, running for governor of New York State, inveighing most recently against pornographers coming after our kids. 
while also known for emailing video after video after video after video of hardcore pornography with his own approving captions to his friends and supporters. Sharon Engel running for Senate in Nevada, embracing the John Birch Society conspiracy about the evils of fluoride in the water, and more worryingly, repeatedly threatening that conservatives should be expected to take up arms, to use Second Amendment remedies if they don't get what they want in the next election. Joe Miller running for Senate in Alaska after running in the primary by having people show up with open carry assault rifles in Alaska parades. This weekend he had his own private security detail handcuff and fake arrest a reporter who was trying to ask him questions at a public forum. There is not an ideological coherence to what's going on in right-wing politics. There's not a cogent argument to make about what kind of challenge these folks present and what's going to happen in these elections. It's not the deficit. It's not big government. It's not the stimulus. It's not Obamacare. It's not populism. It's not that all of these people are outsiders. It's none of these things. These things are all provably not what's going on. They're not bolstered by the facts, no matter how many times you hear them from the Beltway media. This is not what's happening. But the media dressing these guys up like there is some coherent narrative, like there is some cogent argument here, that conveniently obscures what's really going on here, which is that we are on the precipice of elevating to federal office the most extreme and in some cases strange set of conservative candidates in a lifetime. Yes, this has happened to a smaller degree before. In 1994, in the first midterm election after the last Democratic president was elected, we got a slate of candidates that included Helen Chenoweth of Idaho and Steve Stockman of Texas. These two were so close to the militia movement in this country that Mr. Stockman actually received advance notice that the Oklahoma City bombing was going to happen. There are extremist candidates who from time to time survive the churn of electoral politics and actually make it into the mainstream. There's always a few. But there has never been this many. None of this makes any sense. We're just about to elect a whole bunch of extremists. Yeah, this is destiny and it's written in the sand. If you're like most Americans, you dream of selling all your possessions and moving to a self-sufficient off-the-grid farm in South Dakota, all while maintaining your corporate job to pay for your continued satellite TV and internet subscriptions. Well, now with GoToMeeting, you can totally disconnect from the rigors of modern life while staying completely connected. Through the use of screen sharing and conference calling through the computer or by phone, you'll be able to meet, collaborate, and present just as though you hadn't just renounced the concept of material possessions. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST to start your one and a half full moon cycle free trial. That's GoToMeeting.com promo code PODCAST to start your free trial of more than three fortnights. Now you think that it's still early, but it's late afternoon. If you want to turn a new leaf, make it soon. Now we have entered the Marxism era of Glenn Beck. Now he's always dabbled in uh, charging Obama with Marxism, but he's going to take it over the top as his usual style. And then I'll tell you about the trouble he's having with Fox News. So let's go to clip number nine. Here is Organizing for America. This is Barack Obama's campaign organizing committee. Friend, this Saturday, come to join one nation working together on the National Mall. One nation working together. Well, who is working together? I have been showing you the groups that endorse, and One Nation has all of this information on their website. Do not take my word for it. Do your own homework. TiVo, and record this, and look all these groups up, and tell me you want the president saying, come join. This is Organizing for America. He's urging people to attend. 
Now, here's a great one. The International Socialist Organization. They say socialism is not only possible, but worth fighting for. The ISO stands in the tradition of revolutionary socialists Karl Marx, V.I. Lenin, and Leon Trotsky in the belief that workers themselves, the vast majority of the population, are the only force that can lead the fight to win a socialist society. Be brought out from above, but has to be won by the workers themselves. I believe these people, when they say violent or when they say revolution, and they talk about Lenin, Trotsky, they mean the fist and force. Now, I'd love to see the president come out and denounce socialism. Marxist, communist, revolutionaries, once, Mr. President, once deny Marxism, communism, revolutionaries. Tell us you are against all of this. Marxism is evil. And the only thing that it has contributed to in the history of mankind is mass graves. All of these groups and the President of the United States want nothing short of fundamental transformation of America. It is not about cleaning up corruption. It is only a beginning, a beginning of a radical, revolutionary, Marxist land. Do not allow them to get away with the lies. Do not allow them to say that we are just one nation working together. We're just trying to put America back to work and putting America back together. These people, a lot of them have fought their entire life to destroy America. Cuckoo, cuckoo. So here's some socialist group. And remember that Lenin and Marx were also socialists back in 1914 and earlier, late 1800s. And at some point, somebody who claimed to be a socialist did some terrible things. And then here's a quote about the workers. And he makes it appear as if that's on Obama's website. That's not on Obama's website, okay? And he just connects everything together and then says his coup de grace. He has never denounced Marxism, never. Because he never thought about it. He, it's not an issue. When's the, the last time they had an Oval Office meeting? So what should we do with Marxism? What do you think? Should we denounce it or should we, you know, celebrate it? Because nobody's talking about Marxism since 1920s. What, what, on what planet do you live? Okay, but he's not done. He's got more. Uh, let's go to clip number 10. Do you remember this from the last campaign? Yes, we can! Yes, we can! Yes, we can! Yes, we can! Well, it didn't start on this campaign. Yes, we can. No, no, no. no. no A watchdog gave me this book. It's from 1981. Yes, we can. And there's also in this book, right in the center of this book, there's, here it is, People Before Prophets. Where have I heard People Before Prophets? Where have I? Oh, yeah, that's right. Here. People Before Prophets. The Grey Panthers. The Black Panthers. The Black Panthers met with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad last week. But this is just about Yes We Can. The book, by the way, look at the top of it, please. Strengthen the fight back. Build the Communist Party. The book is from the Communist Party USA. The same people I sent you to that are still around and kicking today. That are proud to be standing here in this crowd. You can package poison to look like candy, but it is still poison. Poison. Mass graves, Grey Panthers, Black Panthers, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Kevin Bacon. You see how they're all connected, right? Because the Grey Panthers once also used the words, yes we can in some order, and so did the 
communist, and I heard Ahmadinejad once said in Farsi, yes, we possibly can, which is very close. And it's all connected into mass graves. Okay, we know Beck's a lunatic. The question is his audience. Are they, are they like entertained by the circus act, and, or are they also lunatics? That's an interesting question. Well, apparently, they're not so entertained anymore because he has been losing massive audience, right? He's already shed a third of his audience, nearly half of his audience, from his peak, right? And we've told you about those numbers before. Now comes the New York Times Magazine profile by Mark Leibovich, and it's got some interesting quotes and numbers. Do you know how many, how many advertisers he's, lo he's lost? 296 advertisers. Do you know that when he goes on Fox and Friends or Bill O'Reilly's program, advertisers will pull out of those specific programs because Glenn Beck's on it. People inside the organization are calling this show empty calories, meaning, yeah, he gets ratings, but it doesn't equal any money because nobody will advertise on it because he's a lunatic, right? And so now all of a sudden we got issues, right? And Roger Ailes is wondering, oh, I don't know, how's this thing going? And apparently Ailes, who of course who runs Fox News, is complaining that Glenn Beck keeps hawking his non-Fox News things while on, on the show. So while on, his own sh while on the Fox show, he's talking about all the other stuff that he does as part of Glenn Beck Enterprises, right? And that's getting under Ailes' skin. He's like, so the only guy making money out of this whole thing is Glenn Beck. Fox isn't even making money off of it. In fact, they're losing money because of the program and his effect on the other programs. That's trouble in paradise. Okay, it's one thing to be a lunatic and make money. It's another thing to be a lunatic and lose money. That's when you're in real trouble. So, Glenn Beck, you better watch yourself. The Grey Panthers are out coming for you. Honestly, I don't even know who the Grey Panthers are. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rupert Murdoch watch now. Not, not a special commemorative timepiece. Oh, no. Just uh, keeping track of his roopness. A few weeks ago, speaking with analysts on uh, uh, regarding news corporations' earnings, you know, financial analysts, Rupert Murdoch sounded very pleased with uh, the fact that he's put a paywall up in front of the uh, websites of the Times of London, the good newspaper he owns. With our paywall around the Times, we've had an encouraging number of people subscribing at a good price, he said. We're not going to release those numbers at this stage, or we think we're on the right strategy, and we think it's going well. However, the Business Insider reports a different picture in terms of the statistics that now have come out. The Times has lost 1.2 million, uh, million online readers in Britain since the started charging people to look at the newspaper. According to Comscore, which I guess scores your comms, 
The com- no, kids, I wasn't kidding about that. Come on. The combined number of unique visitors, that is to say, people, I guess, with their own DNA, the combined number of unique visitors to the two new sites has fallen to 1.6 million in July from 2.2 million in June and 2.79 million in May. It's plummeting. The average number of minutes each user spent on the site was 7.6 in May, 4 in July. Even the people who are paying for it aren't staying. Paying, not staying. Well, page views have dropped from 29 million in May to 9 million in July. In its first month, fully behind the paywall, the Times of London has registered 15,000 online subscribers. Of course, if he doesn't get enough money from that, he could also always uh, just underpay his television. Oh, already doing. The second largest shareholder, by the way, in News Corp, parent company of Fox News, has donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to causes linked to the imam planning to build a Muslim community center near in, in lower Manhattan, near Ground Zero. This from Yahoo News. Who knew? Yahoo News. Who knew? Who knews? Used. Who, who, ah, you, who. According to the reports, Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, not the richest man in Britain, this is a Saudi prince, owns 7% of News Corporation. We knew that. He has directly funded Imam Rauf's project. He's the imam behind the community center in Lower Manhattan to the tune of more than $300,000. Rupert's partner is funding the Ground Zero Mosque Imam? Period. Cook, uh, Cook, John Cook of Yahoo News, who knew that Prince Al-Walid's personal charity, the Kingdom Foundation, donated $305,000 to Muslim Leaders of Tomorrow, Hmm, a project sponsored by two of Ralph's initiatives, the American Society for Muslim Advancement and the Cordoba Initiative, which is building the Manhattan Community Center. The... the uh, Prince Al-Walid in the past has funded a number of Islamic organizations that have been criticized by Fox News commentators. Well, that's freedom of speech, babe. Al-Walid donated $500,000 to the Council on American Islamic Relations, which has been repeatedly denounced on Fox News by a woman who's sort of leading the uh, anti-Ground Zero mosque, so-called, project. Pamela Geller and others as a terror group. The donation from Al Walid, Roop's partner, came in 2002. Rauf's numerous ties to the Council on American Islamic Relations have been cited by the mosque's opponents as a justification for imputing terrorist sympathies to him. Prince Al Walid owns an estimated two and a half billion dollars worth of News Corporation stock. Rupert Murdoch recently took a stake in the Prince's Middle East. Media conglomerate Rotana Group. They're reportedly working together on launching an Arabic news network that will compete with Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya. And it will be all fair and balanced. So, uh, news of Rupert. The Rupert Watch continues, ladies and gentlemen, whenever events warrant. Well, it's been a long time, long time now. 
So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot button issues we face, maintaining a rock solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth five bucks a month or as little as $55 a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. And now a special comment from what I suppose is also part of the professional left. It is hard to say for sure. Mr. Gibbs referenced watching too much cable. I'm on cable. I suppose I'm part of the problem from his perspective. In any event, if you're expecting yelling, sorry, this one is intended only to both give a little background and to address a fundamental flaw in that viewpoint from the White House. The heart of this, I think, is the fact that this administration is still amazed that each day does not begin with a round of its applause for its intervention on the economy. Of the first five accomplishments Mr. Gibbs listed in his walk back this afternoon, three were variations of, in essence, we prevented a depression. His frustration is entirely understandable. It's not just that what the administration did has been morphed by the far right into an insurrectionist attempt to install Barack Obama as the teller in your bank, the tax collector at the, your door, the pickpocket at your wallet. It's also not just that a full appreciation of what the president has done requires the proving of a negative. You know, see this alternative universe over here in which we have 19% unemployment and the entire auto industry collapsed under President McCain? It's that the last president was completely lionized. His eight-year scamming of America was swallowed whole because he somehow proved a negative. Every day of his term, this nonsense that he and he alone had prevented another terrorist attack. One president prevents a financial meltdown, gets tepid thanks. The other president doesn't prevent a terrorist attack, gets worship and blind allegiance because he didn't allow another one. Whatever the dark lesson in that sick truth, however, the frustration over it should not be directed at the professional left. The professional right is far more deserving. It is profound and noble to see this president take so seriously the premise that he is just as much president of the people who didn't vote for him as of people who did. But this is ridiculous. The president has shown a willingness to give the professional right not just seats at the table as he tries to restore this country to where it was before Bush and Cheney got a hold of it, not just to give them half the seats at the table, but often, far too often, to give them all the seats, the table and the damned carpet as well. The professional left didn't start the health care negotiations by moving to the right of single payer and then of the public option. The administration did. The professional left didn't try to grease some skids with the minority by taxing union benefits. The administration did. The professional left didn't fire Shirley Sherrod and congratulate itself on quick action to avoid a media circus in this environment. The administration did. The professional left didn't begin this presidency by handing everybody who broke the law and subverted the Constitution a get-out-of-jail-free card and a virtual set of instructions on how to get away with all of it next time, too. The administration did. Mr. President, you will not get disagreement from the professional left that compromises the essence of practical politics. But you have gotten, you are getting, you always will get that disagreement from the professional right. They do not want compromise. They want everything. 
Everything from more profits for insurance companies and less money for schools to you admitting you're not really president and that you've decided to endorse Tea Party candidates at the midterms. Why on earth do you start every negotiation just barely left of center? Anybody on this planet haggling always asks for far more than they expect to ultimately get. Start at single payer and maybe you get public options. Start at indictments for torture and maybe you get a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But I'm veering off fully into policy and straying from Mr. Gibbs heckling the audience and Mr. Burton saying you agree with him doing so. Sir, you need to get past the premise that the left differs from the right in terms of ideology. In this America, they differ in terms of the hardwiring of the brain. The right wants not leadership, it wants lockstep. The right wants not nuanced thought from its adherents, it wants salutes and sworn fealty. The right wants not critical analysis from its media, it wants propaganda. If, Mr. President, you've fallen into the trap of equating the professional left and the professional right, or of the false equivalency of MSNBC and Fox News, you are going to spend the rest of your time in the White House, curled up in a churlish ball in the corner, wondering what happened to your encore. If indeed I am part of the professional left, I am here to applaud good policy and good leadership and good statesmanship and to boo bad policy and bad leadership and bad statesmanship. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, Mr. Gibbs. We are not just another version of the right. We think over here and we fight for what we believe in. And we recognize that the only time you're going to get something out of a Mitch McConnell when he actually says he has no interest in doing anything left of center is when you drag him in that direction by using a pair of figurative pliers. I really don't know if I'm part of the professional left. I really would rather not be. But the sad truth also is that these kinds of roles do not tend to be sought nor achieved. They tend to fall on you when others don't do their jobs. Because if there is a professional left, it's only because on a day like today, the White House has seemed more like the amateur left. Fish gotta swim, birds gotta fly, and politicians, come on, say it with me, gotta occasionally lie. Read my lips. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The world knows that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. When Hillary Clinton was running for the Democratic nomination for president in 2008, she had this to say about a trip she took to Bosnia 12 years earlier. I remember landing under sniper fire. There was supposed to be some kind of a greeting ceremony at the airport, but instead we just ran with our heads down to get into the vehicles. Only when video of Clinton's visit to Bosnia surfaced, it showed no such sniper fire or running with her head down or any danger of the sort. She said later she misspoke. Fibs, fabrications, untruths, call them what you want, but why do media seem to care a lot more about some political lies than about others? American Prospect senior correspondent Paul Waldman thinks he knows why and has developed a few rules for candidates to consider when dealing with the press. Paul, welcome back to the show. 
Thanks, Brooke. So one of your rules goes something like this. Lying about yourself is worse than lying about your opponent, as far as the press is concerned. Why? There's an assumption that part of the role of the political reporter is to kind of get behind the veneer of politics and show us the self that they are trying to keep hidden. But I would think it would be equally revealing if you knew that a particular candidate was spending a lot of time lying about their opponent. I agree with you. But for some reason, the lies about the opponent aren't taken as seriously as the lies that a candidate tells about him or herself. There have been a couple of candidates this year who have gotten in a great deal of trouble when they told stories about themselves that turned out not to be exactly right. One is Richard Blumenthal, the Democratic nominee for Senate in Connecticut, who it was discovered on a number of occasions implied or said that he served in Vietnam. We have learned something very important since the days that I served in Vietnam, and you exemplify it. When in fact he was in the reserves and served during Vietnam, which is obviously a very different thing. Once that came out, there was a big investigation. People went through and looked through all of his old statements to try to find other cases where he had said it or implied it. His opponent, Linda McMahon, is now airing ads that say... If he lied about Vietnam, what else is he lying about? Linda McMahon, who's associated with world wrestling entertainment, she hasn't exactly been in a field that is renowned for honesty. No, they they do an even better job at theater than politicians do. But that question that she asks in her ad, if he's lying about this, what else is he lying about, is one that actually reporters ask all the time, either explicitly or implicitly. But the problem is that it never actually gets answered. And it's a reasonable question. That's supposed to be the whole reason why we're concerned about this, right? That if a liar sort of gets through the election without us realizing it, that in office, that character flaw will have some kind of impact on the performance of their official duties. For instance, Mark Kirk, who's a Senate candidate in Illinois, he's a Republican, has gotten caught exaggerating his own military record. Mark Kirk coming under fire this morning for reportedly claiming a military award that he didn't actually earn. For years, Kirk has claimed that he was named the U.S. Navy's Intelligence Officer of the Year. Turns out that is not quite true. It's not that we should be excusing that, but we should be wondering what exactly does this tell us about what kind of a senator each of those people might make, and then we can judge whether we think that ought to be disqualifying. So let's return briefly to the double standard here, that lying about your opponent is seen as something of business as usual. Is there no lie that one can tell about a rival that would cause the media to stir? Can you think of no example that brought a candidate down? I don't know that I can. (laughs) Most of the criticisms candidates make about their opponents tend to revolve around policies, actually, and they can get away with really wild exaggerations. And that's the second thing that I wrote about, that it's seen as more acceptable to lie about policy than it is to lie about personal matters. And that can apply to some degree whether you're talking about your opponent's policies or your own policies. Part of it has to do with the fact that people who are covering campaigns aren't necessarily policy experts. They're more interested in the sort of strategic questions, who's going to win, what do the polls say. They seem to be less interested in delving into those details to say that, you know, this candidate's tax plan is really just a parade of deceptions. And that should tell us something about what his tax policy is going to be like if he ought to get elected. So what you're saying is that the media have 
less expertise to evaluate a policy charge, and anyone is an expert when it comes to personal matters, but, I mean, you're not excusing it on those grounds, right? Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) Quite the contrary. Perhaps the lies about policy are the ones that are more consequential. For instance, in the healthcare debate that just happened, Sarah Palin came out and said that the Affordable Care Act included a provision for death panels that might condemn her disabled child to death. Now, that was a lie, and it was an extremely pernicious one that had definite effects. The provision in question, which did nothing of the sort, but actually could have been valuable in helping people plan end-of-life care, that provision got removed from the bill amid all the controversy, and that whole death panel argument almost brought down the whole bill. But what we didn't see was a big discussion about, well, you know, if Sarah Palin lied about that, what other kinds of lies would she tell? Those sorts of questions don't really get asked. When you tell a lie about policy, the discussion tends to revolve around what you did. Was that over the line? When you lie about a personal matter about yourself, the question that gets asked is not what did he do, but who is he? Give me an example of a president who paid a higher price for a personal lie than for a policy lie. Well, let's take the contrast between Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. We all know that Vietnam brought down Johnson's presidency, but when we think about him, we think about him prowling the corridors of the White House at night, brooding about Vietnam, and it ultimately being the reason that he decided not to run for re-election. Even though it's widely understood that he told the American public many, many things about how the war was going that were false. It is my duty to the American people to report that renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. The dominant remembrance that we have of Johnson is not that he was a liar. Nixon, on the other hand, near the end of Watergate, came out, looked into the cameras and said, People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. He told the public a lie, not about what he had done or what he hadn't done, about what a policy was. He made that statement about who he was. And I think that's part of the reason why it's sort of burned into our memory about Nixon. And it ties in with this kind of general theme of all political coverage, but especially coverage of campaigns, which is that the most important thing is character. That you're not voting for a set of policies, a set of votes on bills, but that you're voting for a human being. And the most important thing to know is whether they embody those kinds of personal virtues that supposedly go all the way back to George Washington. When reporters are going to say things like, this statement that the candidate made raises questions, the questions that are most relevant to what they're going to do in that office that they're running for are the ones that should be focused on. You're asking them to focus on the relevant It's a tall order, I know. Paul, thank you so much. Goes against every instinct they have. (laughs) Paul Waldman is a senior correspondent for the American Prospect. Speaking of politics, by the way, hit me. Are you ready for some mid to 
worst Hank Williams Jr. impression <laughs> ever. Midterms are upon us once more. But before we discuss the midterm elections, I wanted to uh, remind you guys uh, of this uh, person I once knew. He's an idealistic young politician with big dreams of how the world worked. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We are going to uh, do everything that we can to uh, work with all of you, Democrat and Republican. To step back for a moment, uh, remind ourselves uh, that uh, we have things in common, family, friends, laughter. Uh, <laughs> peristalsis. <laughs> We're all astounded by water, fire, air, and dirt. <laughs> magnets, how do they work? <laughs> really? Insa insane clown posse fans, all right. Anyway, that nice young man went on to become president of the United States of America and finally had an opportunity to bridge the deep partisan divide that had paralyzed our nation's government. How'd that go for him? The easiest thing for the other side to do is to ride this fear and anger all the way to Election Day. Most of the Republicans in Congress have said no to just about every policy I've proposed since taking office. No to infrastructure. There were no new policies from Mr. Boehner. There were no new ideas. Politics, pure and simple. I fail, they win. That may be as close as any president of the United States has ever come to saying, S all y'all. <laughs> but hey, hey, but wait, at least, at least we all still have laughter. <laughs> as in, God, remember that guy that believed that we would work with him? <laughs> so the president out on the campaign trail making his case that you should vote for Democrats because A, that'll keep that sweet, sweet stimulus coming, and B, it turns out the Republicans are kind of a to deal with. Clearly, this man is in mid-season, mid-term election form. Of course, he's just one man in a gymnasium in Ohio. It's not a matter of what he says as much as what we're told that he says. Would the cable networks be able to shake off their summer of the killer mosque cobwebs and dive in? Fox? His speech today, like the, the policies he's advocating, look like desperation. Bottom line, this was the president in campaign mode. He blamed Bush, he blamed the GOP, he blamed Boehner. The president, it was a class warrior today. Class warfare is back. It wasn't what I think Ohio wanted. Is the president's message too little too late? I think it was too much too early. You know, <laughs> bravo, bravo. You had me at he sucks. MSNBC is going to have their work cut out for them. Let's start with the president's speech in Ohio today. What a humdinger it was. He looked, to use his phrase, fired up. His rhetoric can be incredibly compelling. He, uh, he understands how to draw the narrative. I think he got his voice back. Speaking with passion and empathy. This was definitely the best speech we've gotten from him since he's been in the White House. Darling, I mean, it was fantastic. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. I cannot wait to see what Jamie Lee Curtis and the lead singer of Right Said Fred blog about it on my website. I can't believe I'm even here with you. I don't know, I don't know what accent that was. Of course, praise to be expected from the liberal counterweight. But, 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 but. But. 
But as you know, one speech does not change the narrative. But that, that, that there's a gap between what the president says and does, that's a huge risk for him. What are you doing? <laughs> Do you know nothing of your obligation to shape the news towards your desired electoral goal? There is no but in journalism. Have you learned nothing from Fox? You pick your narrative and you stick with it. And if the news doesn't fit your narrative, change your news! <laughs> Watch how the masters do it. Now, the president did have a rare moment of honesty during his speech, and I hope voters around the country are watching this. Taxes are scheduled to go up substantially next year for everybody. All right, that's right. I know the anointed one will make sure that that happens. Wow. <laughs> I can't believe the president of the United States would just blurt out, everybody's taxes are going to go up substantially. Probably because he wouldn't do that. Here's the slightly less abridged version. Under the tax plan passed by the last administration, taxes are scheduled to go up substantially next year. For everybody. By the way, this was by design. See? MSNBC? Amateurs? Starting clips later and cutting them off before the speaker can finish the thoughts full construction can be a useful tool in helping your audience understand what you want them to think. It's a fun and easy way to make people you disagree with say things that make them unelectable. Not that the Republicans need any help making themselves unelectable. This, this is Minority Leader John Boehner announcing the Republicans' new jobs plan in a moment of candor. We're going to ship millions of American jobs overseas. Why would you do that? You must really hate the working man. I bet if we played that clip out, it would end with Boehner throwing monkey in the American flag. <laughs> By the way, that's speculation. I don't know. I'm just saying. It's a shame we don't have time to actually look at the full clip. So, Fox, MSNBC, it's so difficult to watch coverage on these hyperpartisan networks. Let's see what CNN's response to the speech was. Welcome back. I'm Rick Sanchez. Guess what? Moments ago, uh, the uh, Republican minority leader, John Boehner, sent me a tweet personally. <gasps> Dude, you're a newsman, not a 13-year-old girl who just want to meet who just want to meet Justin Bieber radio contest. See, at Rick Sanchez, he sent it to us. Ooh. If you get that excited about tweets that go directly to you, perhaps I could have my audience send some Rick Sanchez tweets. Care of, send a tweet a tweet. <laughs> oh, that's not fair. Rick, I'm kidding. Obviously, you're not just some total meathead. By the way, I said the president was in Columbus. He was actually closer to Cleveland today. I'm right. thinking Columbus because I'm all fired up about that uh, University of Miami, Ohio State game that's coming up this weekend. Sanchez likes football. <laughs> on Sanchez's mind. Sanchez yesterday referred to Hillary Clinton as Fran Tarkington. I apologize.
You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Rick Sanchez was actually a very successful host in Miami as a local anchor for the local Fox station there, actually at the same time that Ben and I worked there. And then he wound up going to CNN, and he's been anchoring in the afternoon for them. Oh, yeah, they went to uh, to MSNBC. First, that's yeah, right, yeah. and then moved to CNN. And, and he's the theory got... was he was going to come back to the NBC-owned station in Miami and, uh-huh. and take over. Right. Uh, that that never materialized, but he's on CNN and he's anchoring uh, there in the afternoons and he's got a big show called Rick's List. Uh, things seem to be going rather well for him, but apparently John Stewart has gotten under his skin. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and Stewart every once in a while will play clips of Rick Sanchez, as he does with almost all the anchors, the, and the people make fun. Who, the people who make fun of Rick Sanchez sort of make fun of him. Uh, he's like almost a, a caricature of an anchor. He's like over the top. At least he was. He's actually toned it down. At Massively. Massively. Yeah. When he was yeah. in, everything was over the top in... Uh, he was he was a character of a local news anchor. He was almost Ron Burgundy esque when he was in Miami. And then he got to CNN and he kind of he kind of toned it down and he expressed some outrage at some outrageous things that the say the Bush administration was doing. Yeah, and and uh, look, I've given credit to Sanchez on a number of fronts. I, I don't mind Sanchez at all until today, where he really stepped in it. Okay, first he's going to go after John Stewart and call Stewart a bigot, which. I still can't understand. Yeah. Well, let's try to figure it out. Clip number two. I think John Stewart's a bigot. I think he I think looks. John Stewart's a bigot. Hold on. Uh, now, now we're going to get into John Stewart, I, I my th- old I, boss, I, I my think, friend. Yeah, I think he's a bigot. How is he a bigot? I think he looks at the world through. Um, uh, his mom, who was a school teacher, and his dad, who was a uh, physicist or something like that. Great. I'm so happy that he grew up in a suburban, middle class New Jersey home with everything that you could what ever imagine. What is he bigoted towards? Everybody else who's not like him, look at his show. I mean, what does he surround himself uh, with? I, I, but listen, he uh, picks on uh, uh, Jews all the time. He's a mm-hmm. Jew. Yeah. He focuses on them. I think he overcompensates to some extent. I always noticed that. Yeah. He goes after himself well, by the way, and let people me, let, like him and everybody else. Well, let, I totally, I disagree with you and I defy you to give me a specific let, example. Let, let, me give you, let me give you an example of what I mean about that, by the way. I don't it's necessarily a, strong, think... pretty strong words, Colin well, John Stewart a bigot. Well, Call anybody a bigot. That's, give me an example. Well, that's what, that's what happens when you watch yourself on his show every day and all they ever do is call you stupid. You see, uh, well, if he's bigoted against the ignorant, fine. If he's bigoted against the apathetic and he's being elitist saying that others are stupid, but what group specifically call someone a bigot against who? Anybody who's different than you are. Anybody who's not from your frame of reference. Anybody who doesn't look and sound exactly like the people that you sound and grew up with. The people that you put on your show uh, who always reflect somebody who's I'm bringing in to sit around me, you know? who's very different from me. I mean, I'm sorry, but I just don't buy this thing that the only people out there who are prejudiced, all right, uh, the only people out there who are prejudiced are the right. There's people who are prejudiced on both sides. All right, so he's talking to Pete Dominic on Sirius Radio there. Pete has actually worked for John Stewart in the past, so he's defending Stewart, obviously, throughout. 
I, I, having listened to that, I still don't understand what Sanchez is talking about. Like, especially the part that confused me is his mom's a school teacher and his dad's a physicist, so obviously he's bigoted. I'm like, yeah. what? I, I don't. I literally don't understand what that means. A couple of things, real quick. A person, a, na a bigot, is a person utterly intolerant of any different creed, belief, or opinion. I guess if you include the opinion part. Maybe Rick Sanchez is using it right. John Stewart is obviously not intolerant of people with other opinions. Crying out loud, Bill O'Reilly was just on the show. In fact, sometimes when people with other opinions are on the other opinions are fine. He's intolerant of deceit. Right. You know, um, as a uh, you can tell there. Even if I didn't know what was coming from Rick Sanchez, I can tell it's coming. Finally, Rick Sanchez is going to tell you what's really bugging him, right? So let's get to the Jewish comments. Clip number five. It's not just the right that does this, because I've known a lot of, you know, uh, uh, elite Northeast establishment liberals oh, that go. may not use this as a business model, but deep down, when they look at a guy like me, they look at a, they see a guy automatically who belongs in the second tier and not the top tier. And why do you say that? Give me an example. Because you're, you're a Cuban, American? I had a guy who works here at CNN, who's a top brass, come to me one day and say, you know what, I don't want Can you... Can you wash this dish? I don't want you, no, no. It was a, see, that's the thing, it's more subtle. And white folks usually don't see it, but we do, okay? Those of us who are minorities, and women see it sometimes too, from men in, in, in authority. Here, I'll give you my example. It's this. Um, you know what? I don't want you anchoring anymore. I really don't see you as an anchor. I see you more as a, as a reporter. I see you more as a John Quinones. You know, the guy on ABC? That's what he told me. He told me he saw me as John Quinones. Now, did he not realize that he was telling me, when I see you, I think of Hispanic reporters? Because in his mind, I can't be an anchor. An anchor's what you give the high-profile white guys, you know? So he knocks me down to that and compares me to that. And it happens all the time. You're telling me that, that... I'm telling you that everybody who runs CNN is a lot like Stewart. And a lot of people who run all the other networks are a lot like Stewart. And to imply that somehow they, uh, the people in this country who are Jewish, are an oppressed minority? Yeah. They have a history of oppression now? No question about that. They can't relate to that? I grew, I grew up in Miami. Every one of my best but, friends was Jewish. What are you talking about? They... Oh, no. And then he throws the last bit in there. So, look, the whole time he's dancing around it, dancing around it, and then finally he can't help himself. And he says, look, the people that run CNN and all these networks are a lot like Stewart. And then finally comes out and says they're Jewish, right? And... And he earlier had mentioned they're elite Northeast liberals, and they put him in a second tier, etc. At first, I really thought maybe he's talking about just white folks, right? Yeah, you know, I, I, I want to hear the whole clip without any editing, mm -hmm. because this is, and this is just the second time I've heard it. But there's a, there's a, he has a, a, a sort of a, he's almost laughing when he says it. Mm -hmm. So I, I still feel like it's in response to something, and that there might be something contextual there. Mm -hmm. What I know, you know, and I know you know this uh, as well, and everybody I guess does. You know, when he talks about the the elite Northeast liberals, right? We got it. Yeah, just Jews with a capital J. No, um, and to just so you know, we're not just. Assuming things, I was literally in a meeting once in in media where they were talking about Ben, which is amazing, right? It just I happened to be uh, uh, working on that show, and Ben was up for host, and they said, "Oh, he's got that Northeast intellectual liberal look." 
which everybody in the room understood meant he looks too Jewish. Right. Okay. Which <laughs> which blew me away. And some of the people who said that were Jewish. Well, most of them probably. Right. They, they, so, were, they were TV executives. <laughs> Look at this Rick Sanchez over here. Hi, Jay. This is Greg from Los Angeles. Uh, just calling about the uh, mosque that's three blocks, or they're proposing to put three blocks from ground zero. Uh, the only thing that really bothers me about this situation is that we're still just referring to, to it as ground zero rather than as the site where they're rebuilding the World Trade Center. Um, as far as I know, all they've done is a few different... Uh, um, photo opportunities of groundbreaking ceremonies and there's no real construction going on and I think that's the real unspoken tragedy of this whole situation. Uh, we still just have this gaping wound right there and we really need to build on that and and fix that wound and then we I think we can move on as a country. That's just what I think. Um, I know that uh, opinions are a dime a dozen but there's mine. So you have a good day. Thanks again. Hey Jay, my name is Joey. I'm from the now infamous Delaware where Christine O'Donnell is running. As you already know, before answering your question from your 419th cast, I'd like to say this will be my first participation in an election and really, I'm scared shitless. If this woman is anything like her Tea Party colleagues, then she'll be trying to fuck with Social Security and like many families, mine is almost completely dependent on it. I've been trying to find a job, but there's no place hiring, of course, and... If she influences a vote on it in any way, we're fucked. We lose our home, we lose our lives, and we lose any opportunity at finding food. And this isn't a threat, but I know a lot of people around here who are seriously considering killing this woman if she actually does this. And to be honest, I believe them because these implications are fucking serious. These are people's lives, and I'm damn sure millions will go homeless. The elderly and those that depending on them, like me and my little sister. Not a lot of kids out there are blessed enough to have parents who aren't deadbeats. Um, for your question, for your last cast, I'd love to go simply because I can, because I want to show those fuckers that there are people out there who aren't going to take their bullshit sitting down and that we do, in fact, stand for something and have families and aren't just a bunch of pothead losers like that fucker O'Reilly likes to call us. All that aside, I have some advice to ask. People like me who have virtually nothing would love to participate in things like the rally to restore sanity but can't simply because of logistics. There's no way I can think to get there in any way that's affordable for me and I'm sure that's true for people all over the country. Is there any way that you can think of for those in my situation to try showing our support other than getting out there and voting so these psychopaths don't get elected? Thanks if you answered my question. Please never stop doing this, and you give a lot of people out there, or at least me, a lot of hope that we're not already over the cliff and that these things can be fixed in the long run. Keep putting up the fight and stay strong. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all of those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, as you just heard, I, I have a lot to unpack from Joey. Um, you know, I don't always respond to uh, the voicemail messages that are left, but this one, obviously, I have to. So, Joey, uh, first of all, tell all your friends, uh, stop being fucking morons, Um there shouldn't ever be any talk about killing politicians 
who uh, you know disagree with you, even if they threaten to vote in ways that is going to hurt you personally. Because listen, the junior senator from Delaware is not the person who's going to be in charge of repealing Social Security. She's just not. She's an idiot, and she will vote the party line. But any Republican would do the exact same thing. There's nothing worse about Christine O'Donnell in those particular terms than any other Republican. I mean, she is going to follow the party leadership, which is, you know, completely horrible and has, uh, you know, plans for the country that will hurt every American except for the super, super wealthy. So continue to have all of your uh, totally legitimate anger at the Republicans, but uh, Christine O'Donnell proves herself to be incredibly ignorant over and over again. And, uh, you know, there are ways to deal with her, mostly by voting, and then after voting, uh, hopefully, 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 we will all begin to ignore her. But uh, threats that, you know, you said, you said it's only your friends who are doing it, and you believe them, you don't endorse it yourself, I hope. But tell your friends, nothing good would come out of something like that. They would end up in jail, and she would become a martyr. Nobody wins in that scenario. Uh, secondly, your question about um, you know not being able to get to the rally, you know not being able to afford to go, um, you know what what can you do in that sort of scenario? I I apologize to everyone that I didn't say this before, but uh, there are car sharing, you know, like carpool networks online where you can go and request rides to places. And I absolutely guarantee that there is someone from where you live, all of you, wherever you're living, um, if you're if you're east of the Mississippi, there's someone in your town who's going to this rally. I can pretty much guarantee it. So um, just a few websites, like I haven't checked any of these out, um, but I found them all on Google, carpoolconnect.com, ridebuzz.org, zimride, Z-I-M-R-I-D-E.com, carpoolingnetwork.com, and ridesearch.com, and there are more, but um, that'll get you started. If you, um, if, you, if you don't feel like you have a way to get to the rally, uh, you can't afford to get to the rally yourself. There are people who are going who have offered up their space, basically. You know, they want to uh, carpool with people. And and then if you don't find anyone who is offering to carpool, um, you can list yourself as someone who needs a ride. Honestly, I should have mentioned that a long time ago when I was answering the question about what's parking going to be like in D.C. Of course, the best way to deal with parking is to not be the one in charge of driving the car. Okay, so now I'm way over time. I thought all that stuff was important to cover, but I'm going to get out of here. I want to thank all the members and donors who support the show. Uh, hook up with the show online, Facebook, and Twitter. If you're going to the rally, definitely uh, plan on coming in to see you know, me and a bunch of other listeners uh, one hour after the rally ends in D.C. Details about that are at the website, bestoftheleft.com. Get details on the show itself, including links to sources and music used in this and every episode, also at bestoftheleft.com on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought by 